the sum and substance of Christianity is contained in the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is the climactic apex of all of what God has been doing in our world. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to this moment and everything since has been leading away from it. The cross is the focal point of God's rescue plan, his salvation plan for our world and for humanity. Every Old Testament sacrifice, every priest that went behind that veil was foreshadowing what we have just read about from Matthew's Gospel. And the early Christians knew this. The symbol of the cross would be the mark that that captured everything that they were on about. It captured the essence of their faith. The cross, this sign of an execution device for early Christians, this was the heart of Christianity. It was an ancient hangman's noose, an ancient electric chair, an ancient firing squad and yet the aim of a noose, a chair or a firing squad is a quick and sure death. However, that was the opposite of an aim for crucifixion. This form of crucifixion that we've read about was perfected by the Romans, perfected by dragging out every unbearable moment of a slow and shameful death, inflicting not merely death, but a torturous degradation of a person's humanity. It was cruel. It was barbaric, barbaric. it was sadistic, and it was vicious. It was so vicious that even the Romans in polite company would not mention crucifixion. It was seen to be so horrific, so impolite, For the Jews, crucifixion, being nailed to a cross, was a sign of being cursed. There was nothing more offensive in the ancient world than this symbol, the cross. And yet, at the very heart of the Christian faith, at the epicentre of spiritual life, we find the cross. How could something so brutal so merciless, so horrendous, be associated with God, let alone a symbol of God's love. And yet, that's what it was for the early Christians. And they didn't rebrand Christianity by marginalising Jesus' death on the cross. It wasn't as if they said, look, uh, you know, let's just talk about the Sermon on the Mount, or are you hungry? Jesus did a great number with bread and fish. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ and him crucified. This was their message, Jesus' death on the cross. It was the earliest summary of the Christian message, the message that the first Christians proclaimed. And it, to them, was not something merely horrendous and horrific. It was something glorious to them. It was something that they didn't want to marginalise. It captured them. And it captured them not because it was a popular message or it was palatable, but it captured them because of its shame. And that's what I really want to focus on 
this morning. I want to think about the death of Jesus and from those three readings in Matthew's Gospel, I want to focus on the shame of the cross. It's disgrace. It's dishonour. So firstly, we've read this morning of the shameful treatment that Jesus underwent. As we heard there in verse 26, Jesus is flogged. He would have been bound to a post and with stone or bone in the tips of leather strands, Jesus is whipped, reducing his back to a pulped mess. And then we're told a couple of verses later in verse 28 that Jesus is handed over to a company of what could have been 600 soldiers where he is stripped of his clothes And in their minds, the soldiers' minds, his illusion of grandeur is beaten out of him further. He is mercilessly mocked for his pretense of royalty. With a crown of thorns placed upon his head, they spit on him. He is treated shamefully. But he's not just treated shamefully, he's brought to a shameful place. He's brought outside the city a place of where condemned criminals were brought. He's brought there on this death march, aided by Simon of Cyrene, and he's brought outside the city to this place of the skull. It was named firstly the place of the skull, Golgotha, because literally it looked like the shape of a skull in its outline, but it wasn't just called the place of the skull, Golgotha, because of its literal shape. This was the place where thousands of people met their death. This was the city's tip. This was the city's waste disposal site. And here Jesus is brought there because those bringing him here consider him just to be refuse, fit to be amongst the waste. He is shamefully treated. He's brought to a shameful place. And there he's placed with what is intended to be a shameful sign in verse 37. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Intended by Pilate, this sign is to be an insult, an insult to the Jewish people. We read earlier that to maintain peace he has released Barabbas. And here Pilate rubs it in the face of the people. With scorn and taunting, Jesus is declared a king. A king in shame. A king in dishonour. A king for so many who pretended to be that, but was not actually. What kind of king is this? This is the kind of king whose crown is his thorns. His robe, his royal robe, is his nakedness. His court attenders are his executioners. His throne is his cross and his glory is his shame. Why is his glory his shame? Why does Jesus endure such humiliation? Why does he suffer in such a way? Well, we see in this passage that Jesus is a king. But he's not a king that the people expected. 
He's not the kind of king even that the people wanted. What we see here as Jesus endures the mocking and then the taunts and undergoes such a shameful execution, we see that Jesus is giving people what they don't deserve. And that's the kind of king Jesus is. He's the kind of king who himself is innocent, is placed now in this position of a criminal. He himself being exemplary in his behaviour and in his integrity is treated like dirt. What we see here in this passage is that Jesus is dying in our place. We see that earlier on in our reading as Barabbas is released. Barabbas is a convicted criminal. He is a guilty person. Jesus is not guilty. He is innocent. But Barabbas is released and Jesus is executed. There's an exchange here, an exchange of the guilty for the innocent. Jesus here is innocent and yet he undergoes the death of the guilty, the death that Barabbas should have or would have been exposed to. And he does that because he's dying in our place and he's absorbing our sin and Wonderfully, he's absorbing our shame. Because Jesus does not die as some valiant, brave hero. He's not lifted up in that way in the eyes of the people. And so for any of us to know Jesus as he is, we must come to him. We must come to him knowing our shame. And knowing that there is an exchange that is at work as we bring him our shame. That shame that he endured means that our shame is released. The book of Hebrews reflects on the shame that Jesus endured. It says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12, And Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. The writer of the Hebrews recognises the utter disgrace and shame that Jesus bore. And he encourages all who would trust in him, all who would come to him to go to him, to go to him not inside the city, not inside the neat walls of perfect houses, of the kind of lives that we like to project, Everything in order, everything okay. No, the writer of the Hebrews says we must go to him outside the city. In that place, that place of shame, that place of the the skull. We can't remain a photoshopped version of ourselves nicely in the city. Now Jesus says, no, the writer of the Hebrews says we must... Go to him outside the city. Outside the city. And there we see that Jesus, as he's outside the city, 
those who are around him there in that moment. They are focused not on their shame, but they are focused on Jesus' shame. And that's the fourth area of shame here. That it's the mocking, the mocking shame from from those around him. You see there in verse 39, it's the people who are mocking him. They're like sharks circling around their victim. They're full of their own pompous pride as they seek to deride and degrade Jesus. Verse 39, those who pass by hurled insults at him. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. You see, they knew something of Jesus. They knew that he was to be a saviour and the test for them was, could he get out of this? Could he get out of this situation if he was such a saviour? Because who wants a victim as a king? But their taunts have the hiss of the serpent in them. Earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, the same kind of phrase is used of Jesus, where he's in the wilderness and the serpent says to him, or Satan says to him, if you are the son of God. In verse 41, it's not just the people, but it's also the chief priests, the teacher of the law and the elders who mock him. They represent official Judaism, the authoritative uh, rulers of the nation of Israel. Here are Jesus' most ardent opponents mocking him and yet unwittingly confessing the truth. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Often people place conditions on Jesus, on belief in God. If God was to show me this, if Jesus was to be right before me now, then perhaps I believe. But there is no truth to what these mockers say. Jesus said earlier in the Gospels that people wouldn't believe him even if he was raised from the dead and they won't believe him now. They won't believe him now. You see, it's the common people, those passing by. It's the authorities. It's the Jews and it's the Gentiles. All cross-sections of society, all backgrounds of people. We have here a picture in Matthew of all of humanity mocking Jesus. All of humanity putting him to death. We might ask ourselves the question, if you could touch God, what would you do? If you could touch God, would you believe? Perhaps not. In Matthew's Gospel, if you could touch God, what would you do? Well, these people, this representation, this cross-section of humanity, when they could touch God, they put him to death. And here in Matthew's Gospel, we are reminded of the darkness of our hearts, the darkness within all humanity's heart. To what depths does the human race plunge when God withdraws his restraining influence? 
And it's not just humanity that is restrained, that is unrestrained here. It's far worse because God isn't either. Later on, at moments before Jesus dies, he utters these words in verse 46 of Matthew's Gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, it's one thing to be rejected by men. It's another to be rejected by God. And this is not just any mere human who is being rejected or forsaken by God. This is God the Son, here on the cross, moments before his death, here at the pinnacle of his pain, and God the Father is absent from him in a way that he has never experienced it before. God the Father and God the Son have been in a loving relationship for all of eternity. How can God forsake God? How can God desert God? Jesus, here in his death, becomes sin for us. The Son in his human nature and the Father turning his back, as it were, on the Son that he has loved. When Jesus died and where Jesus suffered on that cross, he took the curse of sin upon himself. And there in that sentence, there in that cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father cuts him off from that loving relationship that he has always known. Because there on the cross, Jesus is bearing what God can't bear to look upon. He's bearing sin our sin, their sin, all humanity's sin upon himself, the sin of the world, focused on that one person in that one moment. Granted, the physical agony of the flogging and the crucifixion is one thing, but only one person ever in the history of humanity has received the full measure of the judgment of the Father. It is not for the nails that Jesus cries, my hands, my hands. It is for his father that he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's separated from the source of love and life. He could not see his father's face and he did it. He did it so that one day we could. In that moment, As Jesus suffers, he suffers an eternal punishment, a collective punishment, a global punishment for sin. And there, as he dies, as John's gospel reminds us, his last words are, it is finished. Because the work of salvation is accomplished. The ransom has been paid. Justice has been met. Reconciliation has been made and atonement has been given. Jesus' death on the cross, him bearing the judgment of our sin on himself, means that the way to God the Father is open. 
The only way to the Father is opened. In our place he stood condemned. My shame, your shame, is forgiven. And forgiveness is offered to all of us. If you find yourself today in that place where you just, you haven't really come to the place where you've understood this, where you've actually surrendered your life, Jesus makes an invitation to us, to all of us, to come to him today. To come to him knowing that we bear shame, that we have sinned, that our hearts are far darker than we realise or are willing to admit. But as Jesus dies, in his silence he offers us to call out to him. And we can do that today. We can come to him. We can come to him in trust, knowing that his death paid for my sin. We can come to him saying, Lord Jesus, I know that I don't want to live a life of emptiness. I know that I'm burdened by so much of what I've done and I want to be released. I want to know that release from the burden of my guilt and shame. And Jesus offers anyone who would come to him in that way, come to him knowing, come to him burdened, come to him conscious of their sin and fallenness. He offers free forgiveness, eternal forgiveness, the gracious gift of eternal life. This is a plea that Jesus won't refuse to answer. This is a plea that he is delighted to answer because that is why he endured that shame. That is why he went through such a death. That is why he bore the sin of the world. He did it so that you might ask, that you might plead, that you might trust in him. And he is so willing to grant forgiveness, to give reconciliation and to bring you to God. Let's pray that today, whether for the first time or if you've been for a Christian a long if you've been a Christian a long time, let us come to him pleading and knowing through faith that he pays for our sin, he bears our shame, and he opens us the way to God. Amen.